I V M. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, there was a mountain, and there were two little kingdoms that lived in it. They were both very similar in terms of religion and in terms of their rulers. The mountain separated two giant countries, and if anything should happen between them, then these two little kingdoms would bear the brunt of it. You would think that the two little kingdoms would have similar stories, similar destinies, but that's where you're wrong. One kingdom continued to exist, and the other was annexed a long time ago by one of the larger countries. This is a tale of self-image, of diplomacy and foreign policy. Welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm your host Hamsini Hariharan, and every week on the show, I break down issues in global affairs and foreign policy. The story that I told you is one that you're possibly familiar with already. In the 1940s, to all external observers, Bhutan and Sikkim were similar in very many aspects. They were both small, they were both Buddhist, and they were both monarchies on the border between India and China. The Kingdom of Bhutan continues to be the largest recipient of Indian foreign aid today. Sikkim, on the other hand, was annexed in 1975 and became the 22nd state of the Indian Republic. Why did the parts of these two countries have such drastic divergences? Why didn't India annex Bhutan? How does Indian self-image play into all of this? My guest for today is someone who's worked extensively on this topic. Deep Pal finished his PhD at the University of Washington's Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies. He looked at the dynamics of the Sino-Indian relationship since the mid 20th century, and he's also a non-resident fellow at the National Bureau of Asian Research. But before we get into the conversation with Deep, let's hear from IVM Podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another awesome week on the IVM Podcast Network. If you are not following us on social media, please make sure you do. We're IVM Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. After crossing ten thousand on Instagram a couple of weeks ago, this week we crossed five thousand followers on Twitter. If you aren't following us on Twitter, please do. Make sure that you see all the cool stuff that we put out there. We do some cool stuff on social media. Just generally, you should check it out. This week we are launching a new show called Heal and Hearty. It's hosted by Rashna Chachi, nutritional therapist and certified cancer coach. She helps you understand the right nutrition, exercise, and lifestyle that keep diseases away. Show premieres on Tuesday, fifteenth October. In case you missed it, do check out our daily policy podcast called All Things Policy. It's hosted by the researchers at the Takshashila Institute, who break down complex economic and geopolitical ideas through the lens of current affairs. New episodes are out every single day. It's a fun show. Do check it out. Our Cyrus says Cyrus is joined by Devika Mandrekar. She talks about being obsessed with the TV show Friends, the joys of being a chef, and growing out of the shadow of her father Sanjay Mandrekar. The Simplified Gang received a lot of questions from you guys, forcing Chuck, Narayan, and Shriket to record a second part of their special 150th episode. Make sure you tune in. On the Habit Coach, Ashton talks about the Hawaiian practice of reconciliation, forgiveness, and how phrases can impact your life. On GBCD, Sunetra and Farad reminisce about school and discuss the effects of being bullied because of one's queer identity. On the Edges and Sledges Cricket Podcast, Ashwin DJ and Varun deep dive into the first test between India and South Africa. On the Pragati Podcast, Anne Devereaux joins Pawan to share how NASA and JPL plan and manage interplanetary missions. On Boundless, Natasha reads poems on the themes of stepping outside of your comfort zone. On Pesa Vesa, Anupam is joined by Saman Sikka, Chief Dream Officer at Squirrel. They have an interesting conversation about how his team came up with the name. And with that, let's get on with your show. Hi Deep, welcome to States of Anarchy. I'm very glad to have you join me. Thank you, very happy to be here. All right. So when you think about foreign policy, there are a lot of 
factors that feed into it. Mm-hmm. I know that one factor that you've researched a lot on is self-image and how that plays into a country's foreign policy. So can you tell me a little bit about how self-image works with India? Right. So uh, as you mentioned, right, there are various kinds of issues and components, internal, external, right? When we read IR, we read about all these. So external factors determine decision making mm-hmm. and this and state behavior and all of that. But um, there is this uh, one aspect of it which uh, pertains to how does a state look at itself mm. and how does that reflect in its decision making right mm. the, when you think of it it seems pretty uh, intuitional right yeah. i mean obviously we we believe we are something a state believes there's something mm. and then uh, on the basis of that you know uh, it 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 should reflect in some way on decision making right like sort of the values that a state holds the values that a state holds right but i mean the values represent themselves or reflect themselves in various ways mm-hmm. right so yeah. one of those ways is self image so if you look at ir and if you look at this guy called robert jervis right mm-hmm. he he talks about uh, images and perceptions mm-hmm. right basically essentially what he's saying is that a state has certain images of itself mm-hmm. uh, which it projects constantly mm-hmm. and expects other states to form impressions about them on the basis of those uh, images that they project right so right. images and perceptions are constantly playing and he also says that okay if a state projects certain images and sees that other states are mm. not looking at them the way they would want to be looked at mm. they change their behavior to ensure that the images that they're projecting mm. fit them right okay. so they're constantly so there are certain images that a state would project and it is even ready to change behavior to ensure those images are up all right how does this play out in terms of india for example right for india for example there uh, when you look at uh, the region right mm-hmm. so th- we when we look at the contemporary history of india right mm-hmm. 47 onwards if, if if that is a period last 70 years if that's yeah. a, that's a good period of time to look at right um so if you look at that period of time there are a number of these uh, behaviors acceptances of uh, historic events or renunciations mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. that would if you string them together mm-hmm. you see that there are uh, certain kind of things that are acceptable certain kind of things that are not acceptable right and, and if you try to turn that around to understand okay what does this say about india self image mm-hmm. right uh, you find a number of these components a number of these factors right mm-hmm. so one of them i would suggest is uh, this idea of a civilizational connection Right. So in the region in the mm. in the immediate neighborhood India has this aspect of self image for example if you call it which suggests that India is civilizationally connected to all its neighbors mm. right now to some extent uh, it this connection is geographic right so mm. if you look at not just uh, during the raj but even if we go beyond far beyond that so from afghanistan onwards to Uh, Bangladesh parts of Myanmar there are parts of those geographies have been part of what we today consider India under the british before mm-hmm. that right so there there's always been that to an extent there, there's this idea that you know even before india became a modern nation state that there was this political geographical consciousness um of being indian and there you can of course debate that from mm-hmm. various mm-hmm. angles and mm-hmm. poke holes with it but mm-hmm. it is sort of one school of thought right that mm-hmm. says that there's an akhanda bharat mm-hmm. that existed all the way in the middle ages mm-hmm. uh, that ha- lent a civilizational mm-hmm. unity to mm-hmm. the subcontinent right so what i'm not sure of is if you would say that this was the idea of being indian as we consider today the idea yeah, of being yeah. indian but i think for a long time there has been idea of this being a part of of something bigger mm. right so that that has existed and most definitely uh, if if we look at uh, the last 70 years this has 
existed, right? Yeah. Possibly this is a social, cultural, communal, people to people kind of a connection, right? That that has always yeah, yeah. been there, right? So so there's that idea of being civilizationally connected mm. to all of these. And remember, this is not just geographic, right? So in some cases, like for example, with Tibet or mm. with Sikkim or with Bhutan, right? There's the connection of Buddhism. Right. So that's also something that we hear a lot about now. But so connections are of knowledge or of mm. faith as well. Right. So there yeah. are these are various ways uh, mm. in which you can be connected to another part of the world civilizationally. Right. Yeah. So you have all these overlapping networks, not just of trade or faith, um, but also just relationships, I guess, Absolutely. of pilgrimages, of various factors that are at play that sort of build up. What Absolutely. a civilization is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So so all of these various ways in which uh, the civilizational aspect of the connections, mm. that's so that's that's one. Mm. Another very important aspect of, of self-image that I consider is that of uh, this anxiety over territory. Right. Mm. Now, of course, one way of looking at it is that all nation states, all modern nation states are anxious about their territory. They yeah. are right they they almost everyone puts uh, soldiers in their borders mm. right i mean if you look at the us and the southern border of the us right now right so there are soldiers in the border and you won't let others cross over and all of that sure uh, so in india's case also this the one large part of this territorial anxiety mm. has to do with 1947 partition and everything else right but aren't new states generally anxious about their territories they usually are so post colonial states usually are yeah. in india's case it's even more pronounced because of the history of partition yes, right of course. so there is there is obviously this idea that okay this is what india was supposed to be and mm. then you suddenly tear away two parts on mm. in the east and the west which eventually become two different countries mm. years later but what that does is from 47 or from 1950s if you see there is this idea that something went missing right mm. something that was supposed to be a part of independent india mm. went missing right which reflects in this idea that whatever now India claims as its own, as its territory, hmm. is non-negotiable. Okay. Right. So yeah. so there is that very stringent idea that, which is why when we look at Indian maps, right, uh, hmm. uh, uh, part of Aksai, you know, part of um, uh, Pakistan, Occupied Kashmir, we see them very assiduously guarded in our maps, right? Even yeah. though and it's a punishable reality. sort of offense exactly. to represent them as anything but. Exactly, right? I mean, that very uh, strong belief that, no, this is exactly mm. how the Indian map must be represented mm. at all times. So, so there is that, which also connects with the idea that, you know, there, there are these scholars, uh, uh, Steve Hoppen, for example, mm. someone who writes about how um, one of the ideas of Indian nationalism mm. also involved uh, looking at boundaries as something that has been uh, transferred to India through time. Mm. Right. So when we talk about the Himalayan boundaries, mm. right, as the, as the, the Himalayas as the northern boundary of yeah, India, yeah. right, it's indisputable, right? Mm. So that watershed and everything else, right, irrespective of what political realities are, no, that is what our the boundaries boundary is, are, yeah. right? So that's, there is that, that idea. So territorial anxiety is, is another aspect. And a third aspect, which, uh, to an extent came to us as a legacy of the Raj, but it's also something that uh, independent India from very early on has been following on, is the idea of development as a component of foreign policy, right? Okay. So uh, the idea that for India to develop, the region has to be uh, developed, mm -hmm. right? And India as a bigger player has to help uh, develop uh, all of the various uh, other actors, mm. smaller actors, they obviously are smaller actors, right? Mm. India, yeah, yeah, of course, the largest actor in the region. So it has to help all of these smaller actors to the extent that it can, right? So even today, when we look at Nepal, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, mm. you know, Bhutan, any of the countries, right? Even Afghanistan, right? Uh, most of India's aid uh, goes into 
its neighborhood. neighborhood yeah. Right. So these are basically three components that I look at, which form very strong aspects of India's self-image. Right. So India basically wants to say on the basis of this, this mm. is who we are. Mm. Right. So, yeah. Uh, just about your last point about mm. uh, development as a way of looking at India's self-image. Do you think this came from the idea that, a, it, of course, having a successful neighborhood will mean that these states become stronger in their own right and therefore the region would develop? That's one way to look at it. Um, the second is something that I wonder... Is it also something that comes from sort of conversations about socialism that the government was having at that point in time? Or was that completely different? I think there is the aspect of uh, socialism to an extent. But I would say there is a more instrumental reason, which mm -hmm. is that, you know, as you help these countries develop, these states develop, right? And remember, this entire region is of post-colonial states, right? Yeah. Everyone, right? Yeah. So all of them are starting from a pretty low base. Mm. India has the advantage of uh, having been the center, the jewel in the crown, mm. uh, right, uh, of, of the British Raj and everything mm. else. And it's much larger. Mm. So obviously more resources of every kind and, mm. and more people. So what it also does is if you're helping these states very instrumentally, what it ensures as are these states are to an extent beholden to India, mm. right? Which you see reflecting in the changes that are happening, let's say in the last 10, 15, 20 mm. years, right? As we talk about China as, you know, as they have entered into what India has always considered its own sphere of mm. influence and they are offering the kind of services that these states were expecting from India and they're saying, mm. hey, we're going to do it faster and everything else. India has this problem with that with that idea, right? Mm. Come on, these these are guys who have always... Uh, depended on us to yeah. help them out with these things. And now suddenly there's another player, right? And and that's a problem. Yeah, and you could see it very clearly reflected like in the Maldives or in Sri Lanka when the recent elections happened and uh, they said, no, India is interfering with our mm -hmm. democratic processes. Mm -hmm. And then you had China saying mm -hmm. uh, the Maldivian government should function as it sees mm -hmm. fit. And, and then Indians becoming angry over the idea and saying, this is our neighborhood. You know, this has always sort mm -hmm. of been... Uh, our playground and it's unfair for uh, other players to come into it. Uh, but just going back to the idea of India's self-image, how did India's self-image affect its foreign policy in South Asia? So I would say it had a very central role, mm -hmm. right? Because, you know, we all know about Nehru and everyone is talking about this new India and, and everything else, right? Yeah. And so what, what does this new India mean, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously, uh, this includes very uh, strongly rebuffing influence from both the the Russia, the, the, Russia, the, the United the States, the USSR, UK, right? Mm. To be not seen getting close to any of the uh, so-called empires, mm. right? So which is why, uh, which is one of the reasons, as we know, that the early Indian government was very careful not to side even with the United States, right? In the 50s, when the US was looking for an ally in, in, in South Asia and everything, which eventually uh, uh, made them uh, seek out Pakistan, which mm. is a whole different story. But so that's that's one part of it, right? So we are we are seeing these leaders talking about there being a new India. Okay, mm. so who is this new India going to be? Mm. So this new India is going to be someone uh, who is going to help others around it, right? Mm. Which extends, if you, it's possible to argue that this extends into the non-aligned movement, mm. right? So so we are all of these post-colonial nations who will stick together and advance into a new century, mm. right? At some point in the early fifties, this even involved um, China, right? Mm. So where where uh, Nehru and Others, again, seem to believe that India and China are going to be the, you know, the two engines which are going to bring Asia into the new century and, yeah, and things yeah. like that. So that's that's one way of, of looking at it. The self-image aspect of it is, I would argue, very central mm. to forming a whole new identity 
for independent India, right? Mm-hmm. Which is so another very interesting example is, you know, in the in 1950, right? Mm-hmm. When the Korean War breaks out, mm-hmm. right? India has absolutely no locus standi, yeah. right? To wade into the middle of that extremely complex. Uh, uh, but they were the head of the neutral nations repatriation commission. Right. So one of the reasons why, what that reflects hmm. to my mind is this idea that, so you don't have economic power, hmm. right? You don't have military power. Hmm. You don't have political clout. Okay. Hmm. What, do you have you have what nehru uh, very famously argued multiple times was you have moral power right mm. so you basically argue that okay we are going to show how you conduct yourselves as a fair member of the international community mm. right so this was one way of inserting india into the world stage getting mm. noticed mm. right it was also another way of uh, guiding or suggesting the direction in which independent India should be conducting its foreign policy. These are some of the ways in which I think uh, we could look at this. this Yeah, Uh, it's also interesting when you're talking about India's self-image. One of the um, sort of important aspects of nationalism, right, is identifying your nation as distinct from an other nation. So uh, I am Pakistani by virtue of not being Indian. Mm -hmm. I am Sri Lankan because I am not Bangladeshi. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, India likes to stress on its civilizational uh, ties with all of these countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think there's an interplay between both those variables? Right. So before I get into that, one of the things is, so, I mean, I think I'm Pakistani because I'm not Indian is a very, it's a very sui generis way, case, yes, right? Because yeah. one of the ways in which Pakistan or, or the elites or, or decision makers in Pakistan, right, have existed is by saying, oh, we are un-India. We are what India is yes, not, right? Yes, so, yeah. so, so that, um, but having said that, so uh, as far as India is concerned, um, I think what has helped India to always claim the civilizational connection is to be able to see that, you know, we are kind of the origin, mm. right? So this is where Buddhism, for example, emanated mm. from us, mm. right? This is where, so Adish Dipankar crossed over, mm. you know, and took his knowledge of Buddhism with them, mm. right? So, so that's, that's something we have given, mm. okay? We have been the, the source, so to speak, mm. okay, of, of these various ways in which, uh, Others have been enriched, mm. right? And that also connects to development, right? Mm. That's not something that we did 2,500 years ago during Buddha's time. Even now we are helping, let's say, Bhutan uh, mm. get its hydropower projects in, in place, Chuka and others. This is also the time when we are helping, you know, other states uh, mm. form their bridges and, and parliament houses and ports mm. and whatnot, right? Yeah, so yeah. so that's, that is that is basically the connection, okay? Mm. We are in a position to help you, right? Mm. That That constantly allows India to get into those positions, mm. in, into the central position in mm. amongst all of these states. Yeah, that's interesting because um, you have these states often label India as a big brother mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and, and you know, criticize it for its uh, dominance in the region. But mm-hmm. I, I think sort of looking at it in terms of self-image also lets you see where India is coming from in terms mm-hmm. of its own policy. Uh, but something that I know that you've worked a lot on is uh, looking at how uh, India's policies differed towards Bhutan and Sikkim. Mm-hmm. And I thought these were two really interesting mm-hmm. um, case studies. So mm-hmm. maybe I thought we could speak a little bit about that. Uh, mm-hmm. Shall we start with Bhutan? Sure. Before we do that, on mm-hmm. the on the issue of Big Brother, if I can just go back yes. to it for one quick second, leaving aside the obvious connotations of Big Brother in today's uh, yes. uh, milieu, yeah. <laughs> even leaving uh, that on, uh, aside, you know, so the other way, and this is something that I realized when I was speaking to people from these various um, other states in mm. South Asia when I was speaking with them, I realized that uh, one 
part of uh, India's approach with all of these states, okay, where, look, it is the obvious big player, yeah, right, yeah. in terms of human resources, in terms of technological advancement, in terms of uh, uh, capital, in every every way you can imagine, right? What that has also ensured is bring about a certain kind of hubris mm. in the behavior that... Um, maybe technocrats, maybe bureaucrats, maybe various people, mm. okay, that have dealt with uh, all of these players. Now, that is not something that is, uh, that that most of these uh, other states like, okay. Mm. Uh, just because you're helping us mm. does not allow you to uh, talk down to us, right? That's, that's, a, and, and that's a lesson if you, uh, I mean, I have looked at these archival materials. Mm. That's something that has existed from the 1950s, mm. right? I mean, there are letters where Jawaharlal Nehru has found these complaints reaching him mm. from, uh, the the king of Bhutan, okay, and he passes on. He say he passes that on to others uh, in the foreign ministry and says that you know this is this is something that we need to remember, or this is this kind of behavior mm. is something that we need to uh, uh, refrain from. Mm. Uh, we are not because this is how an imperial power, colonial power, behaves. Now it is completely possible that the behavior emanated from that, mm. right? Because the early technocrats, bureaucrats were all people who had worked mm. with the British and culturally at least uh, that some of that did pass on through the years, sure. right? It's it's completely possible that mm. that is where it started. But that's also something that's very important mm. to uh, remember. Yeah, mm. I agree. I think when I was doing research in Southeast Asia mm-hmm. and uh, India often stresses on its ties um, through Southeast Asia, whether it's the spread of Buddhism or the idea that some Tamil kings went up uh, to Indonesia. Um, this is not something that Southeast Asians are a big fan of. They, they've often complained of sort of high-handedness on mm-hmm. the part of mm-hmm. Indian diplomats when they're stressing on cultural values. Mm-hmm. Because uh, how some of these states look at it is their <laughs> own local culture adopted things that traders and other people brought in. And it's a process of globalization, but this is their own unique culture. And by sort of high-handedly stressing that India is mm-hmm. sort of the birthplace of all of these things, takes away from their own merits and values in that sense. Oh, absolutely. So when they stand there, they look at their role in this, mm. right? I mean, so in when India talks about, oh, we gave this, right? Mm. Anyone is, is within their rights to say, maybe you gave it, but it was on us whether we wanted it or not, whether they took it or not, right? Um, just as in, in, in the way that you say that, you know, um, there is this uh, question of or India is accused of high-handedness. I remember reading about this document um from late 1950s mm. okay uh, this gentleman who worked with the indian government i'm go- not going to name him sure. um who talked about how uh, now nehru had this habit of uh, invoking um india and china and the future of asia okay indian china together mm. and and the future of asia in many of his speeches many of his conversations right and this gentleman who had met uh, some of the people in the Chinese leadership, including Cho Enlai and others, he writes in a diary that, you know, uh, my sense is that they don't quite like it. Uh, they think that he is uh, overstepping mm. in his behavior or in his uh, uh, in the way he implies that India is... is uh, I mean, who is India to basically say that India and China are going to do this, right? China mm. is free to make up its own mind what mm. it wants to do, right? What is this... Uh, 
tying China together with India any anywhere he goes, right? So the, the, so he kind of suggests that uh, maybe this is a, an example of Indian high-handedness, which China doesn't like as much, mm. right? As we see uh, happening in the, in the subsequent in the next, uh, this is from from the second half of 1950s. So as okay. we see uh, as the events unfold over the next five six years, we see that. Uh, this gentleman wasn't very wrong about about mm-hmm. uh, Chinese uh, behavior and, and Chinese uh, feelings of uh, high-handedness from India about this. Right? Uh, true. And also, when you think about the 1962 war between India and China, I think uh, when people say India's moral power took a hit, particularly mm-hmm. with respect to the non-line movement and all of that, I can see where it comes from because India is so deeply tied a lot of its reputational power with mm-hmm. how its diplomats were behaving as well as its own self-image, as you put it. Um, and all of these factors, I don't know if it's fair to say that it didn't stand the test when it came to the 1962 war or how it fared with that. Um, yeah. So I think the immediate causes of the 1962 war were some other causes, right? Yeah. As we know, one was the forward policy and, and, and yeah. I mean, the assumption of Nehru and others, they did not think that that was mm. really going to push mm. China into war. Yeah. You know, in, and plus, there was the aspect of uh, the Dalai Lama crossing over in 1959, mm. right? Which has extremely, uh, uh, which had angered Mao Zedong and mm. others and, and there was that. But I also think one of the, so... Uh, this this is also uh, uh, recorded in history about how uh, this um, shocked Nehru to an extent mm. where right where he he wasn't the same person he was before mm. October 1962 after November 1962 yes. right yes. and eventually he passes on in 1964 but the fact that uh, w- what I think that also points at is that at no point possibly did Nehru think that. Um, India's behavior mm. could be construed to be such which would bring a war upon itself, mm, mm. you know. Uh, now, remember, this is, uh, so the second war with Pakistan hasn't taken place yet, right? Yeah. That's 1965. That happens in a few years. Though, um, enmity with Pakistan or uh, or antagonism towards and from Pakistan is something that's more or less established at that yeah. point in time. It's a part of the status quo, right? It's, it's right. Now, as far as China is concerned, what... I think one of the ways to look at this would also be that no one really thought that, I mean, the assumption was that India's, um, India's stand issues could not be, uh, there was no one who didn't believe it. Mm. You know, the assumption was that um, there was no one who didn't believe what India said about why it did various things. Mm. The Dalai Lama, for example, right? Mm. By this time in China, we see the, assumption or the understanding that oh the reason why India's you know allowed the Dalai Lama to stay in and his people to stay in is to be able to use him as leverage right mm. but if you look at documents from that time from the Indian side there is absolutely no sign of that right there is again that conversation about civilizational connection yeah, yeah, yeah. you know uh, if an individual Tibetan identity is completely going to be wiped off mm. and uh, uh, and replaced by a Chinese a Han Chinese identity then how do we preserve uh, the Tibetan identity maybe in the form of the Dalai Lama staying mm. in India that's the conversation that has happened in 59 that's the idea that uh, Nehru and others in their conversations have tried to give right and, and the assumption is that the world will understand it the world will believe it right so in 62 when the war happens the greatest i think surprise or shock about that is that how did no one believe what we said mm. that was something completely new 
Yeah, I guess it makes sense that the Indians didn't think that that narrative would sort of be questioned. Uh, because perhaps A, it hadn't been challenged very much on the world stage before. Um, and B, they didn't think that it would turn against them, which in a lot of cases it did across the world, um, particularly because of things like the forward mm-hmm. policy and how that played out. So, yeah, in that sense, I can understand um, how those factors came into play. Mm-hmm. Um, moving on to okay, yeah, uh, how yeah, India's yeah. self-image uh, plays out in its neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's start with Bhutan. Bhutan's a fairly small kingdom. Tell me a little bit about the history of uh, India-Bhutan ties, particularly around this time and how they evolved. Right. So if you're looking at Sikkim and Bhutan, right, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, these are two great cases to look at when it comes to Indian foreign policy. And well, Sikkim is now a state, but that's mm-hmm. something that happened in 1975. Before that, it had its own king, its own government mm-hmm. and everything else, right? So these are two very interesting cases to look at, especially because they're two, you, you know how similar, so in research, we talk about similar uh, cases, right? Yeah, yeah. So when you look at these two states, they're two tiny Buddhist monarchies, both Himalayan, mm. uh, both sandwiched between India and Tibet slash China, however mm. you want to put that. Right. So, and when we look at India's policies towards them, mm. what is so fantastic is that, oh, also uh, in both cases, India inherits relationships from um, the British, mm. right? The British had treaty relationships, which we will get into in a bit, but uh, had treaty relationships with them. Uh, after 1947, India has its own treaties with these two uh, entities. And what we see happening after that is mm. fascinating uh, because we see that India's relationship with Bhutan develops in a completely different uh, clip than with Sikkim. Right. Uh, in early 1970s, uh, now Bhutan and Sikkim both try to have a more autonomy, mm. right? And in 1970s, early 1970s, we see that India helps uh, Bhutan become a member of the United Nations, sponsors mm-hmm. its uh, its membership and everything else. And there are these conversations that are going on at that point between the uh, various bureaucrats and everyone else, you know, because they're talking, hey, you know, uh, there there is this assumption across the world that Bhutan is not completely sovereign because mm-hmm. of its relationship with India. Right. And how do we tackle that? And, and Indian diplomats are talking about the MEA actually sends a circular across the uh, to all of its uh, embassies saying, okay, this is how you tackle this question, right? And as we see, the world is convinced by that. And, and mm. in 1971, Bhutan becomes, the, uh, becomes a member of the United Nations, right? As far as Sikkim is concerned, when Sikkim talks about more autonomy, mm. um, we see India very uh, reluctant mm. on that front, leading to the point where uh, the Sikkim is king, who was called the Chogyal, mm. the Sikkim is king's... Um, power and authority being reduced mm. okay in in the early 1970s leading eventually in 1974 for sikkim to become an associated state mm. Uh, of India. And in 1975, the Chogyal is deposed and uh, Sikkim becomes the 22nd state of India, which mm. which is completely opposite of what we have seen in Bhutan happen, yeah, right? Yeah. It's in, in the last three, four years, right? And uh, basically what I suggest is much of this is in response to how these two states behaved, you know, in, in response to India's self-image and concerns, right? How these two behaved when it came to um, India's uh, approach of civilizational connections, how mm. they behave when it came to uh, India's territorial anxiety, because both mm. of them, remember, they, they bordered China, yeah. right? Um, and how they behaved when uh, it came to um, Indian projects of development and aid, right? So that's that's basically uh, part of my project, right? Now, as far as Bhutan is concerned, Bhutan is this kingdom which uh, 
was brought together in the early 20th century mm-hmm. by a king who brought about the beginning of the uh, Wangchuk dynasty mm-hmm. right so the current king is the fifth in line mm-hmm. so this gentleman was the Ogen Wangchuk was the first king of the Wangchuk dynasty he started in i think 19 early 20th century and uh, a british uh, treaty with them mm-hmm. was signed soon after right which uh, formed a foundation mm-hmm. of uh, bhutan's relationship with british india right mm-hmm. so so this treaty which was signed i think around 1910 essentially said that it was called the treaty of punakha okay. which basically said that british india mm-hmm. is going to advise bhutan on external relations right okay. as far as internal matters were concerned there will be no involvement from anyone sure. the bhutanese were free to go about it themselves and is this different from what british india said to a lot of the princely states this uh, to an extent is different mm-hmm. because at this point the british were more or less okay with letting bhutan go about their business mm. i mean in fact as an example if you if you look at sikkim for example which was not a princely state mm. uh, per se but if you look at the treaty that uh, governed british india's relationship with sikkim mm. which um, was signed in the early 1800s right uh, treaty of titalia in that we see that they have extracted the right to uh, trade up to the tibet border right okay. in exchange of uh, helping sikkim get back all the land that nepal had uh, annexed through the years right okay. so the gorkha right. kingdom of nepal they were mm-hmm. you know through wars taking away land that sikkim believed to be its own and when the british defeated uh, the nepal in the first anglo nepalese war that land they uh, helped sikkim get back and they said that in exchange okay we are going to uh, we are going to need the right to trade up to tibetan border right what that also meant was being able to place british soldiers mm. uh, near the border right so there's there's that so so yes there, there was a difference between how british india conducted its uh, behavior and its relationship with bhutan than with others around it yes All right. mm-hmm. okay um so what essentially is happening is that so you said in 1910 uh, britain signed a treaty with bhutan That's right. right and how did this legacy sort of carry over to 1940s when india got independence so after india got independence there were two again uh, two separate treaties that were signed one in uh, 1950 and one in uh, 1949 so uh, the treaty with sikkim is in 1950 and the okay. treaty with bhutan is in 1949 and in what we see happen is in the treaty in 1950 we see uh, in india being responsible for uh, communications okay. defense and external affairs of sikkim okay right okay. that's a large mandate that's a, that's a pretty large mandate right and and uh, the treaty that is uh, signed with bhutan in 1949 in that there is this very famous article 2 which says that you know um, Uh, India will advise Bhutan on uh, matters of external relations. Right, that's Article Two. Now, as as we see later, at various points in time, Indian diplomats are uh, conversing with Bhutanese diplomats. You know about the nuances of this, okay? Mm. Uh, about nuances of Article Two, and and uh, Indian diplomats obviously saying that you know it means that we are going to advise you, mm. and the Bhutanese diplomats saying yes, it says that you're going to advise us, but it doesn't mean that we are bound to go by that advice, mm. right? So all of that happens, and eventually, in two thousand eight, we see when the Indo-Bhutanese Treaty is renewed, we mm. see that that Article Two is dropped. That okay. that yeah, that no longer uh, exists there, right? Uh, so th- this is this is uh, uh, basically where uh, we see that 
relationship between the two uh, entities begins to diverge, right? Mm. I mean, so there is this uh, Bhutanese account which says that in 1949, when Nehru and others, they were uh, speaking with the Bhutanese uh, team, with the Bhutanese delegation about the treaty, um, Nehru kind of said, you know, um, why don't you allow us to take care of your communications and external relations and, you know, defense, basically... Uh, the like same the thing as Sikkim, yeah. Uh, the same thing as Sikkim, right. And and they say, no, you know, thank you very much. We don't really want to do that. Right. But at the same time, it's, it's also another thing to remember here is that, see, these are times when things are in a state of flux, okay? Mm-hmm. There is so much else happening, right? I mean, when we talk about Sikkim Bhutan, that is the nature of research, right? We make it sound like there was nothing else that was happening anywhere else, which is obviously not true. Yeah, but if the year is sort of 1949, 1950, there's a lot happening in Kashmir, there are lots happening within like the Constituent Assembly debate. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's so much happening across absolutely. the country. Absolutely. In fact, I mean, so in 1947, January mm. 1947, right, Nehru brings about a special resolution mm. in the Constituent Assembly, uh, which suggests, which allows extra powers to mm. the committee that is negotiating with princely states mm. to deal with Second Bhutan, right? Mm. Which, which is basically to give the idea that these states are not the regular princely states that, mm. that were being dealt with, right? So that happens. Now, later in 1947, the later Chogyal of Sikkim, at that point, the Maharaj Kumar, he comes to Delhi and he meets the Secretary of State, VP okay. uh, Menon. And he's, you know, he says that, okay, you know, Sikkim is a independent state and it must be treated as such and everything else. And VP Menon listens to him, doesn't commit anything. And the Maharaj Kumar goes back, right? So, so both sides are having these conversations throughout. But they are also having it at a time when in 47, in 48, in 49, in 50, there is so much as that is going on. Yeah. Right. So, so. The basic idea at that point is to just have some kind of a status quo in the relationship mm. uh, and not rock the boat so much, right? Which mm. we which we see happening uh, with various other steps that uh, the then Indian government begins to take, yeah, right? Yeah, the, yeah. the idea is to let's we will figure out how to modify the relationship later, mm. but for now let's make sure that things just don't go out of hand. Yeah, right. So that's that's basically where the relationships essentially start after 1947, 1948-49. All right. So this happens in right after uh, the Indian independence in 1949-50. So what happens through the next two decades? Right. So what we see happening after that is um, now... So the, the Maharaj Kumar of Sikkim, right? right. Who uh, He becomes the, the king in uh, mid-1960s, a little, I think, 1963. All right. Right. And... Uh, even before that and even after that, one of the major issues that he concerns himself with is the idea of an independent Sikkimese identity. Hmm. Right. Now, Sikkim is now independent Sikkimese identity is a very curious animal hmm. because when you look at the population of Sikkim, uh, 75% of Sikkimese population is Nepalese. Right. Okay. The other 25% hmm. is Lepcha and Bhutia. Hmm. Now, this 25% is, is, uh, are the elites, hmm. right? So, essentially, 25 people with 25% majority in the population hmm. are basically ruling over people with 75%, who form 75% of the population. Now, hmm. we have seen that happen in various other places, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's usually a recipe for disaster. Things don't end well when that happens. Not necessarily. Yeah. Um, now, the Chogyal, who uh, is Lepcha Bhutia, mm. is very keen on asserting this independent Sikkimese identity, mm. right? And he talks about it at various uh, various forums. Now, this 
essentially keeps bumping against India's ideas of having a connection or of various other things, right? So, for example, in uh, 1967, right, uh, there is a skirmish that happens between Indian uh, forces and uh, the PLA mm. in Nathula, right? Mm. That happens in October, November. And soon after that, um, we see the Chogyal and we see his sister kind of saying that, you know, it's difficult to figure out who who uh, was responsible for this. It could have been India that was responsible or it could have been China. Mm. Now, India obviously does not take kindly to that, mm. right? A little later, we also see the Chogyal sister talking about uh, giving a newspaper interview about um, independent Sikkimi's identity, right? So, when you look at the timing, it seems to suggest that these are basically attempts at uh, trying to separate uh, mm. uh, Sikkim from the sphere of influence and assert that, you know, we are players unto ourselves mm-hmm. and we have we have no connections or no relationships with others here. Mm. Now, that obviously is not looked at very kindly, yeah. right? At the same time in Bhutan, okay, uh, before we move forward in the years, yeah. now with both Sikkim and Bhutan, we have seen that, you know, Nehru had this affinity for that part of the mm. geography, right? He keeps on traveling there and everything else. He, in fact was planning to go to Tibet, which did not work out because the relationship with China is already, yeah, yeah. right? It's 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 on the fritz by that time, late 1950s. So instead, he goes to uh, Bhutan. Okay. And he goes to Bhutan in uh, 1958 with mm. Indira Gandhi, right? And they actually, on their way to Bhutan, uh, they had to, so from Sikkim, they had mm. to go into Tibet and then get into Bhutan, right? They were, okay. yeah, the route. That was were, the route. That was the route. That was the route. Um, in fact, Bhutan, did not have a very good connectivity till early 1960s, which is when they had their first um, five-year plan, mm. uh, which was uh, bankrolled by India. Mm. And uh, the second five-year plan was also almost entirely bankrolled by India. Mm. But that obviously has changed now. But essentially, you know, when we t- the, the issue of development, for yeah, example, yeah. right? So, so that's that's those are ways in which uh, things have been there. But anyway, so Nehru goes to uh, Bhutan in 1958, and mm. he and the then king. Um, uh, Jigme Dorji Wangchuk, mm. they immediately hit it off, mm. right? They have this very interesting rapport and it seems, uh, it's it's a very interesting relationship where both of them seem uh, to have a sense of respect about the other. Okay. Right. And that kind of carried forward the relationship uh, for the next many years because this gentleman, the, the king of Bhutan, Jigme Dorji Wangchuk, was a king till 1972. Mm. Right. He was king for a really long time. And he actually maintained the relationship with India throughout this period. Right. I mean, on one hand, you know, when you see Sikkim um, really trying to uh, uh, question India's role right in the region or in claiming that we are connected to each other and all of that. Uh, this gentleman, on the other hand, we see talking, welcoming Nehru uh, with open hands, talking about uh, Bhutan and India being, you know, partners. In fact, even at some point going on to say that, you know, India is the big brother and things mm. like that. So that really uh, cemented the relationship to a great extent. And I know that um, a lot of Bhutanese cadets come to India to the mm-hmm. uh, NDA for training. Um, but, but does this go back to that point in time or does this come later? Right. So in the uh, 1960s, around about the time when development funds begin mm. to go, is also when this organization called the IMTRAT, mm. okay, which is uh, basically the Indian Army's team that trains Bhutanese army, right? Okay. So that begins to be settled there. Okay. Also the Border Road organization, mm. right? The Border Road organization is also set up and that 
helps uh, uh, build infrastructure in Bhutan. So Indian Army trainers to mm. train uh, Bhutanese Army officers and the Border Roads mm. organization. So those two are permanent stations that continue to be uh, in, in, in Bhutan from the 1960s. All right. Okay. On that note, let's just take a short break. Yeah. Did you know that Parsis in Mumbai, instead of being left at the Tower of Silence after they die, are now cremated? And why? Because a cow fell sick in the early 1990s. Did you know that the smog in Delhi is caused by something that farmers in Punjab do and that there's no way to stop them? Did you know that there wasn't one gas tragedy in Bhopal, but three? One of them was seen, but two were unseen. Did you know that many well-intentioned government policies hurt the people they're supposed to help? Why was demonetization a bad idea? How should GST have been implemented? Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Varma, and in my weekly podcast, The Seen and the Unseen, I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience, and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind, but also yours. The Seen and the Unseen releases every Monday. So do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in. You can also subscribe to The Seen and the Unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer. Hi, welcome back to States of Anarchy. I'm with Deepal and we're talking about India's self-image and how it's dealt with Bhutan and Sikkim. So um, what happens after... Um, Nehru meets with uh, the Bhutanese king in 58, you'd said, <laughs> right? So how do relations progress the decade after? So, I mean, multiple things happen, right? In the early, so uh, if you look at the selected works of Jawaharlal Nehru in that, in the in 58, you find a number of these, you know, reports. He actually sits down there and he's writing these reports about his impression of Bhutan and everything. He's writing to the uh, foreign secretary who is uh, Subhimal Dutt at that point in time. And he's saying that, you know, I think they need... Um, uh, help in or they can be helped in these 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 aspects or these these sectors he talks about education infrastructure to name a few um, and and how how do we do that and things like that in early 1960s we see the first five-year plan for Bhutan mm. uh, that comes about which is entirely uh, funded by India at that point and that is when the first set of motorable roads in Bhutan actually get made okay right? um Subsequently, throughout the 60s, uh, we see uh, these these advisors. There was this uh, gentleman called Nari Rustamji. Okay. Okay. Who is uh, sent as an advisor mm. uh, to to the Bhutanese uh, king. Um, in fact, he had a role to play in... Um, uh, the the airport the uh, the Paro airport which mm. uh, I mean is the prime airport to get in, in Tempo, Bhutan yeah. yeah yeah in in Paro uh, sorry it's an uh, R R away from yeah, Tempo yeah. Uh, and the old kingdom uh, and the old capital um, so that is still the major uh, inter- the only international airport I think, mm. in in Bhutan um, so he designs that and and there are these documents which show that you know he's uh, they're they're talking about um, 
building these uh, schools okay mm. and trying to get teachers uh, from uh, across the world in fact from europe mm. right so so all of these things start happening uh, in the in the 1960s the border roads organization gets developed around the same time the imtrat which mm. is the indian army's uh, training team for bhutanese army officials all of that happens in the 1960s right mm. and and um, Uh, there are a number of these uh, visits that happen uh, from delhi into uh, bhutan now now here is this also also this thing um, where you know while we talked about the treaty right and yeah. how the treaties were different for sikkim and bhutan mm-hmm. right now however um, in delhi's mind mm-hmm. there was uh, sikkim and bhutan were always uh, hyphenated right and what sort of evidence did you find for that so for one uh, every time you see that uh, whenever uh, a minister or a official or the foreign secretary or whoever um, makes a visit to one of the two they make a visit to the other mm-hmm. right to the point where this gentleman called bs das who i spoke with in 2016 um, who unfortunately passed uh, on uh, some months later bs das was uh, india's first ambassador to bhutan in okay. 1968 uh he also had a role to play in sikkim a few years after so someone who had been in the thick of things you know so he talked about how the bhutanese king at some point told him that you know what i don't like is why do your people always have this thing of uh, going to sikkim and bhutan at the same time why can't mm. they make just one visit to bhutan okay uh, or to sikkim leave mm. leave I mean, you seem to want to say that we are similar but i am emphatically telling you that we are not so mm. as you can see bhutan was very aware of its uh, difference in status mm. okay inter- as an international entity um from sikkim at that point in time and they were very keen that that message be uh, conveyed you know to india right so so that is something that's that's very very significant and this is sort of reflected in their bid for un membership as well yes this which happens um, which is something that they had been talking about right from the 1950s near uh, the end of 1950s in fact uh, a bhutanese uh, Uh, group had even uh, come to there were always these people from bhutan who used to come to india right elites sure. and uh, all of them and they had even brought up this in delhi right mm. in in 1959 i think 58 or 59 they had brought this up where they uh, talked about uh, you know uh, how if bhutan became a member of the united nations they would be um, as a as a full-fledged international member of the international community they would be even more effective in acting as a barrier against china right so you see what they're doing they're very carefully positioning them in a way that they think will be uh, acceptable to india mm. or attractive to india right yeah, yeah. so so that's also something uh, that happens around the same time and there is also another reason why fundamentally um india uh, uh, De- delhi uh, uh, looked at sikkim and bhutan through more or less the same lens all right till about 1968 right uh, the political office in sikkim mm-hmm. okay was the apex body which uh, reported to delhi about the region okay. right and so the political office in sikkim was based out of gangtok hmm. right so and and what were they responsible for they had been and this is something that had been going on from the days of the raj right okay. so they had been responsible for the relationship with sikkim hmm. they were also responsible for the relationship with bhutan hmm. 
and in earlier years okay uh, before uh, tibet was uh, before in the pre 1962 years hmm. they were also responsible for the relationship with tibet hmm. right so immediately if one person the political officer is someone hmm. who is conversing with the sikkimese uh, royal family and with the bhutanese king and also lhasa which we are not getting into now if there if it's the same person who is Mm. talking to both of them and is reporting to delhi and delhi is you know communicating with him for this it is kind of it even it it's it's even a matter of you know uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, just to make things easier essentially right it's it's the same person you're dealing with so whenever you deal with them you you possibly hyphenate the two places but what it also does for the entire bureaucracy is it brings those two places together something that bhutan was not at all okay with Yeah I guess you sort of get it like an institutional lens that looks at Bhutan and Sikkim just by virtue of it having the mandate over these three places right so I think that's sort of like an obvious outcome of uh, I guess just like bureaucratic work I suppose so yeah I I think yes because when these people are looking at Sikkim and Bhutan hmm. or looking at the political office in Sikkim hmm. which deals with both Sikkim and Bhutan they are not really thinking about you know the 1949 treaty said this but the 1950 treaty hmm. said that right so they are different okay we should think of them or treat them differently they are just doing it's 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 just easier hmm. right so that is basically one of the things that happened but while it was easy for Delhi to deal that way hmm. Bhutan was definitely not happy mm. to be dealt to be bracketed with, with Sikkim in in all aspects. Yeah, it's like the front bencher in the class asking not to be equated with the last person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think yeah, that's 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 possibly one way of looking at it. In fact, uh, one of the things that it led to in 1968 mm. was the creation of uh uh, uh an office of the representative of India okay. in Bhutan. And what that did also was you know all of these people they used to send these weekly and monthly reports to delhi right mm. okay this month this is what has happened in sikkim this is what has happened in bhutan and things like that till 1968 the report that was sent uh, from the political office in sikkim mm. was one consolidated report about sikkim and bhutan okay okay yeah, and yeah. this this month in sikkim and mm. bhutan right and uh, after 1968 we see that physical separation happening mm. there's a separate gentleman mm. who's sitting in thimpu uh, somewhere in bhutan or whatever and he is uh, giving his own separate report on uh, bhutan mm. i think in the initial months that was first being sent to the political office in sikkim and then from there sent to delhi and all okay, of that yeah, yeah. but there's a separate person mm. right so that that also happens in the late 1960s all right and when does india finally nominate bhutan Right, so the nomination of Bhutan for the United Nations is something that uh, the Bhutanese Parliament, the Bhutan had a par- Parliament hmm. which advised the king. Hmm. Right now, the Bhutanese Parliament has been uh, asking about it and talking about it throughout the 1960s at various points in time. And again, uh, this is something that uh, India appreciated. Right, hmm. the king. he assures the parliament that i am going to take care of it hmm. okay i am going to speak to india about this but at the same time he is cognizant of india's he doesn't embarrass india hmm. by by talking about this at an inopportune moment right hmm. you know so when we talked about how the relationship between sikkim and bhutan separates and becomes different this is also an important aspect because in case of sikkim we see that delhi's impression is that the chogyal will 
lose no opportunity to embarrass us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With Bhutan, they are absolutely certain that, you know, the Bhutanese king will not do anything to embarrass us. Mm. Right. So anyway, so they keep talking at various points in time. Now, in 1970, mm. what happens is the Bhutanese king, uh, Jigme Dorji Wangchuk, he's unwell by this point in time okay and he knows that uh he's he's going to be ill he's not going to be around for very long so he decides to do a couple of things to mm. make sure that his son the eventual fourth king mm. um jigme uh, singe wangchok has a smooth succession mm. so what are these things that he does one he begins talking to india about the uh, united nations Uh, membership sponsorship right all right because if uh, bhutan becomes a full-fledged member of the international community with a presence in the united nations that uh, makes it secure in many ways including uh, from let's say undue influence from india or from any other player yeah it's right? just sort of like assuring yourself of your own sovereignty right and like Absolutely. international recognition of that is a Absolutely. it's an ins- insurance policy yeah right essentially so that's that's one thing he does other thing he does is that he has this half brother who has a number of followers among the younger bhutanese elites okay, okay who at that point are talking about how uh, you know maybe india is not doing enough for bhutan and maybe Uh, Bhutan should look at others and everything else. Now, so that India doesn't become too concerned about that, and also so that this person does not become a problem in succession plans and various other things, he makes this person uh, in charge of the um, of Bhutan's preparations for becoming a member of the UN. Hmm. Right. So gives gives him an important job. It's hmm. it's fascinating. Right. So so in this way, uh, th- there are these conversations that begin. with india about uh, uh, bhutan's membership of the united nations now in 1971 hmm. the proposal is finally sent hmm. right and uh, by that time uh, the foreign minister of bhutan uh, the half brother of the king you know all of them have been uh, to new york they have basically lobbied and hmm. uh, talked canvassed for it essentially you know they've talked to various uh, uh, members and hmm. told them about uh, bhutan wanting to be a member of the united nations they have used uh, india's offices right and india also by this time is completely behind bhutan on this right as i mentioned earlier uh, diplomats across the world you know are the mea is sending them these advisories mm. if anyone questions bhutan's relationship and whether bhutan is completely sovereign and if they can become an individual member this is how we tackle it right mm. so all of that is happening and I, uh, sometime in 1971 eventually mm. uh, bhutan gets accepted as a member of the united nations right now once that happens bhutan at that point in time obviously does not have the wherewithal mm. to conduct its business right so the second in command at the uh, indian embassy in bhutan mm. this gentleman called an ram okay he is he is sent as uh, the deputy permanent representative of bhutan to new york okay right so he's essentially an indian national who goes there and i spoke to him some years ago and he said that you know while i was there during the day i would wear their national dress and i would conduct myself in bhutanese business and i became bhutanese for the day and at at night i would come home i'd change into my other clothes and i would then again become an indian so it's it's a it's a fascinating uh, thing of how close Mm-hmm. uh the association is at that at this point in time that, that's a very interesting story now contrast that with what happened in sikkim for me we know that uh 
the annexation of Sikkim happened in 1975. Uh, call it annexation, call it the merger with Sikkim, uh, your choice of words. Um, but I, I know we don't have possibly the time to go into the nitty gritties of what happened with the right, annexation right. of Sikkim. But can you explain sort of briefly yeah. how that uh, worked between the same periods of time, which is through the 60s and the 70s? Right, sure. Before we get into the annexation of Sikkim, there's one another story. All right. So the other important, interesting um, story uh, that comes out of Bhutan around this time is 1971 is also the year when the Bangladesh war happens. Oh, yes, of course. Right? Yeah. And the Bangladesh war is one where India found itself uh, almost alone in the international stage, save one country, Bhutan. Yeah. Right. Which came to India's side right in the beginning. Um and what we also see happening, very interestingly, is the king issues an appeal to the Bhutanese citizens and mm. says that, you know, now this is the point when the refugees are flowing into India from mm. East Pakistan, right? So he, he starts raising money for these refugees. He comes to Calcutta, near Kolkata, where the uh, refugee camps are. He meets the refugees himself, goes back to Bhutan, says that, you know, we need to raise money uh, for them, puts in a substantial amount of money himself goes to his various family members, raises money and encourages his citizens to raise money for these refugees, right? He also speaks with the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi at that point in time and he says that, you know, I have a small army, but if you want it, it's yours, right? Now, whether or not eventually India would have needed his mm -hmm. army is, is besides the point. The point is that all of this also suggests to India that this is someone that you can depend on. Mm. Right. This is someone who's solidly next to you. Right. Yeah. No, this is just fascinating because um, whether it's this or it's the story of um, A.N. Ram mm -hmm. going mm -hmm. to represent uh, Bhutan at the world stage. These are stories about the relations between the two states that I, I don't think a lot of people have heard about even or aware of. It. Yeah. I mean, so un unfortunately, I mean, most of the stories of India's foreign relations are, are you know, formed of if not of the biggest uh, states or most powerful states like let's say US, UK, mm. China, and all of that, or Pakistan, for example, mm. uh, it is it is even when we look at the neighborhood, most stories are about let's say a Bangladesh or a mm. Nepal or a Sri Lanka, which are bigger players. Bhutan, mm. we keep thinking, is this really small player which is there, but it's a fascinating relationship and it's mm. a fascinating story and. By not looking at these various very interesting episodes, I think we run the risk of taking this relationship for granted. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's always important, uh, A, to first capture narratives and histories that exist. And I agree with you when I, when I say that I think that we sort of do a disservice to, uh, just like the people who've come before us in laying foundations. I mean, if you remove that sort of institutional memory mm. of what a policy towards a particular state is, um, then you're left with very short-sighted goals. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, and exactly. I mean, with Bhutan, for example, right, mm. the relationship hasn't come here on its own, right? Mm. There have been countless men and women who have worked for the relationship to be here, for years, right? Yeah, yeah. It has been because of uh, 
the efforts, the sincerity, the the minds, you know, of so many people, right? This B.S. Das, for example, mm. right? Um, he writes in one of his books about uh, in 68, when he was going to take over as the representative, he uh, went to Bhutan mm. uh, with the then foreign secretary, Tien Kaul, mm. right? And he talks about how, Obviously, there was no heating or anything yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, in, in uh, Bhutan at that point in time. And it's not very well developed. And he talks about the house that, uh, that they were uh, put up in when they mm. first got there um, was had mud walls. Okay, So he talks about it was extremely cold mm. and it was Diwali. Okay. Right. So obviously, they're very upset at being away from families. Okay, uh, they're, they're there and they will meet the king. But uh, he, at that point, not too many people knew or understood Bhutan. So he's wondering, what am I doing here, mm. right? And then Tien Kaul brings out a deck of cards from his briefcase. And they sit there and they play cards to, you know, bring in the flavor of Diwali. Right. And it's inconvenient and they're doing all of that, right? With But with the idea that all of this will amount to something at some point mm. in time, right? And, and looking at history, essentially, or looking at these nuanced versions or conversations in history is important, essentially, because otherwise we run the risk of taking these relationships as a given. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So anyway, so the, the Bhutanese king, um, mm. after, after December... When the war ends, Bhutan becomes the first country to uh, acknowledge or recognize independent Bangladesh. Before right? India. Before India. Before India. And uh, again, um, the dispatches from Bhutan at that point in time that come to Delhi uh, are glowing in their appreciation of the king's behavior. Right? Mm. No one seems to. Uh, so technically, uh, Bhutan is supposed to be advised mm. in its uh, foreign affairs by India mm. but at this point in time no one really seems to care because <laughs> you know in, in Delhi there is this exuberance of having proved the world wrong mm. of having you know liberated Bangladesh um, and the fact that Bhutan has done this it, it's mm. just greatly appreciated what Bhutan also does is forms a trade relationship Bangladesh mm. and forms a starts direct flights between Bangladesh, right? So that also kind of establishes Bhutan mm. as its own player. Mm. You know, so that's that's mm. Bhutan's takeaway from that, right? right. Uh, which just goes on increasing in the subsequent years because obviously Bhutan by that time is a member of the UN and so on and so forth. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. <clears throat> All right, now coming to Sikkim. Yes. Um, so the relationship with Sikkim, unfortunately... I, as I told you, there was the Chogyal, right? Mm. Who was uh, who was very keen on establishing a Sikkimese identity, mm. right? Uh, which um, what was his version of Sikkimese identity was possibly largely a Lepcha Bhutia identity, not the Nepalese identity. But there was that. But there were also these other people. Um, for example, his wife, mm. right? Uh, who was this uh, American lady called Hope Cook, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, who still lives in New York, I believe. Um, who met the, who was the Chogyal's second wife, mm. met him uh, while she was traveling to Darjeeling, got married in after a whirlwind romance and everything mm. else. And then sh suddenly she got introduced into this uh, entire milieu. And now I have heard, I mean, there were rumors at that point in time that she was... Uh, CIA. Yes, yes. Which... I have n not found any historical evidence of and from all the literature that I have seen, all the archival documents that I have seen, it does not seem that anyone very serious, anyone important, mm. anyone of consequence uh, who was, uh, uh, you know, eyes of ears of the Indian government mm. 
at least in in Sikkim, seem to believe that she was okay. They reported that okay, mm. there is you know they are talking about how she is CIA, but they don't say that oh you know we think they she is CIA. So so there is that. You know? I, I'm going to confess mm. to you at this point, Deep, that one of the reasons that I really wanted to talk to you about Sikkim was to really find out if Hope Cook was CIA because I don't know if that's a narrative to just sort of spread mistrust in mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Chogyal and the. Sikkimese government at that point in time mm-hmm. or if she was actually CIA and you have this very Hollywoodish <laughs> <laughs> okay so <laughs> okay I'll, I'll be very non-committal here I'll say I have seen no evidence that suggests that she was CIA fair enough okay All right. that does not mean she wasn't but if you ask me I don't think she was All right. okay but here's the thing it didn't take a uh, for her to be CIA mm. to worsen matters between Sikkim and India. Mm. Right. There was so much else that was going on. For one, uh, she basically, once she got in here, and mm. she obviously had to be taken in both by the Chogyal and by a Sikkimese life to to want to agree to, you know, sit down and, and uh, in, in, in Sikkim and spend, promise to spend her la- uh, life here and everything else, right? So she got into the thick of uh, of of Sikkim's elite life, which also meant, uh, for example, uh, uh, giving birth to uh, or, or setting up organizations, informal organizations, right, which were considered, which basically officially were opportunities for young Sikkimese elites, people who worked in the government, and so on and so forth, to come together and talk about how to improve. Uh, Sikkim and Sikkimese life, right? Mm. But uh, c- clearly, Indian representatives there believe that that was basically where they um, uh, hatched plans on how to oppose India or mm. embarrass India and things mm. like that, right? So she was in in uh, the bad books of the the uh, political office of, in, in Sikkim already because of things like that. Mm. Also, around the same time, she wrote this article. So Darjeeling, for example, mm. used to be a part of Sikkim. Till 1835, I think. All right. right? Middle, okay. of the ni- middle of the 19th century. Now, in a transaction between the British and uh, the Sikkim, uh, Sikkimese royal family, uh, Darjeeling was turned over to the British, mm. okay, because it was important for tea uh, mm. cultivation, things like that. And there was uh, a promise made of, of uh, giving Sikkim a certain amount of land, which was not something that was fulfilled. Right? Ah, okay. Now, Hope Cook in the 1960s, mm. uh, writes an article in which she, she says that, you know, Darjeeling belongs to Sikkim, mm. right? And that, again, is oh. sets the cat among the pigeons, right? I mean, that is obviously something that uh, Delhi doesn't want to talk about or think about. And remember, mm. Sikkim at this point is a separate state, right? Sikkim mm. is, is not a state in India. Uh, so when you're talking about India's self-image and you're talking about India's territorial mm-hmm, integrity mm-hmm. in that sense and saying that Darjeeling is a part of Sikkim must have just been very infuriating to people at Delhi and in Sikkim, I'm guessing. No, absolutely. I mean, so so this basically means two things. One, it means that India is uh, um, much like an imperial power, which mm. is obviously not acceptable, right? Mm. It also means because India is holding on to land that is actually someone else's or it also means that um, India's boundaries, right, are not India's boundaries, right? Mm. You were immediately putting into question one of that, right? Mm. So essentially, the Sikkimese map extends further down, Mm. right, in the south to engulf 
uh, what is what is at that point in the northern part of bengal mm. right so so yes in from both uh, aspects this is not acceptable so in fact uh, there are these mea files that i have seen uh, where you know the mea says okay there is this article you know is there any merit to this question right and then there are responses to it saying that you know this this was something that was between the british and now obviously there can be no question of turning this over and mm. everything else because darjeeling at that point is a bustling indian economic center you know it's 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 it's, it's impossible to right yeah. have this conversation at that point in time and also no one really wanted to have that conversation mm. right because uh, it would i would assume that hoko by writing that did not really think that darjeeling would come back to sikkim it was basically to you know ruffle the yeah. feathers she wanted right? to make a point about she sikkim. wanted to make a point also i think she was uh, try hoping to um appeal to a sikkimese sense of identity right mm-hmm. that is what all of them were trying to do yeah, right yeah. so yeah so that that would have been another issue now so so th- there were enough reasons for hope cook to uh, whether she was cia or not there was mm-hmm. enough reason for her to not be liked by mm-hmm. by people in delhi so this is happening um now there were in 1968 on indian independence day you know when the flag hoisting and everything else is going on mm-hmm. there were protests right in in gangtok against india and and some of the slogans seem to suggest an affinity to their northern neighbor right so uh, essentially to china right mm-hmm. i mean the slo- the wording of the slogan said our northern neighbor ah uh, okay meaning. so they didn't spell it out but they didn't they... spell it out but that is that is that... all it all it can mean yeah. right? which absolutely changed things mm. right because that was obviously that was not something that personally or physically the chogyal was doing but uh, the reports from from uh, sikkim at that point said you know uh the people who are organizing this are known to be close to the chogyal and things mm. like that and obviously this cannot happen without his knowledge or his in, uh, influence or you know somehow uh, his 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 uh, uh, involvement yeah I, i agree i think if you look at it from a, a bureaucrat at that point in times view you would say you know these are protests that are happening in a public sphere mm-hmm. um these ideas would not come without strains of these thought going into the chogyals um mm-hmm. amongst the political advisors of the chogyal as well if not himself um and so i could see and particularly considering that this is the aftermath of 1962 mm-hmm. and it's not very long after that i could see why mm-hmm. indian diplomats would be alarmed mm, absolutely absolutely i mean by this point in time um, anything that talks about china see another difference between sikkim and bhutan is that sikkim is more accessible mm. right to tibet because largely of nathula right yeah, I mean, yeah. Bhutan also to an extent is, but not as as much, right? Mm. I mean, Sikkim gives you access to through Nathula. It gives you access right up to the plains and Chicken's Neck and all of that, yeah, which yeah. we have talked about two years ago during Doklam and everything. Mm. Also, right now, so obviously that's that's an important aspect. So any time in Sikkim, the the moment the conversation turns towards China, okay, everyone in Delhi just stands up and says, okay, this is something that we need to uh, consider right away. So that happens in sixty eight. Uh, the Nathula thing has just happened in sixty seven. Hope Cook becomes an important aspect, and during all of this, we see the Chogyal in various ways, which are not very uh, important or do not hurt India really. Okay. But he keeps trying to defy the the. treaty in various ways mm-hmm. right so for example the treaty says external communication would be taken care of by india uh, the chogyal uh, sends congratulatory messages you know to various world leaders for mm-hmm. their either their birthdays or for various incidents right and that is something that 
uh, uh, irritates India, right? Mm. So there's this that's that's one thing that keeps on happening. Um, on the other hand, uh, they keep trying to, you know, uh, so for example, early 1970s, with the help of Hope Cooks, Hope Cooks. Uh, contacts in in the u.s they have this fashion show that they do in uh, in new york okay, okay which essentially has um models walking around in sikkimis clothes right mm. that is basically their way of getting awareness raised in the u.s mm. about um, um uh, about sikkim and sikkimis clothes and things like that mm. they keep inviting um oh, okay so they're not supposed to have foreign experts in sikkim mm. without uh explicit permission from India and things like that. They keep having people come into um, Sikkim as the guest of the palace, mm. but they are actually the experts who work okay, on various sure, things. Right? Sure. So there are various kinds of things hap- mm. keep on happening. And the way that India deals with it eventually mm. is by taking help of this guy called Kazi Lendub Dorji, okay. who is a politician who's been around for really long. He's a pro-democracy politician. Mm. He leads a party that has largely Nepalese supporters. Mm. And at some point... Indira Gandhi meets uh, the uh, chief of law at that point in time, uh, Kao, mm. and essentially says that, okay, let's figure out what we can do about Sikkim. And that is how the research and analysis wing actually gets its hands into Sikkim. Remember, Kao at this point is just coming out of Bangladesh, right? Yeah, Which yeah, has been yeah. a super success and everything else, yeah. right? So this is his new project, next project mm. that he gets into. As a result of this, in 1973, there come about these um, kind of political agitations Mm. which the Chogyal fails to uh, control Uh right now part of the treaty and some letters exchanged after that said that if the Chogyal requests India Mm. to handle law and order situations India would have to do it Mm. now the Chogyal at that point does not really want to do it because he realizes once that happens he's going to lose all power to India right India is going to come in and not leave exactly he does not want to do that but eventually he gives in as things become Mm. worse and worse and once that happens, effectively, that is the beginning of the end of Chogyal's hold over, over Sikkim and executive powers in Sikkim. Uh, B.S. Das, who was in Bhutan earlier, yeah. is brought in as something called the chief executive, okay. who takes up uh, almost all of the Chogyal's executive mm. uh, responsibilities. Um, in subsequent elections, uh, uh, Kazilendu Dorji and his uh, party, they continue to win. They ask India, and this is happening between 73 and 74, okay. right? And 70, going towards 75. I mean, I'm not going into all the yeah, integrities, yeah, yeah, but yeah. essentially, it's like a domino effect by this point. Uh, so, Kazi and his people, they ask India if, you know, it is possible to have Sikkimese representation in the Indian parliament. Hmm. Okay. They ask help for a new constitution, which hmm. in a couple of uh, weeks, okay, a new, uh, this gentleman who is uh, set up as an advisor, he comes up with a new constitution. Right. Uh-huh. So, all of these things keep moving. Now, by 74, India is more or less in in control of Mm. Sikkim's executive apparatus, right? And the assumption, and the Chogyal, even that point, is the titular head, Mm. right? And the uh, uh, Indian Foreign Secretary by that point, Kewal Singh, he has promised the Chogyal that, you know, you will continue to be uh, the Chogyal of Sikkim and it will pass on to your son. Mm. It seems that India's expectations were that the Chogyal is going to eventually step down he's going to get quieter and he's just going to settle into this titular responsibility okay but Chogel doesn't do that Mm. right in early 1975 Mm. uh, he goes to Nepal Mm. to attend the coronation of then King Birendra Mm. right and during that he meets uh, Chinese representatives who were also there okay 
and he talks to various people complaining to them about india and holds a press conference and that really leads to the point where soon after uh, he is deposed mm. right there is this book called smash and grab okay um uh which is by uh, with uh, sunanda k dattaray who mm. a journalist who was there in sikkim at that point in time it was uh, unavailable unofficially unavailable in india for a really long time okay. it's recently been um, reprinted and it's available that has a, a really uh, close account of what happens he's mm. deposed in 1975 there's okay. a referendum that happens right um and in the referendum uh, essentially over 90% of the population of sikkim um says that they want to be a part of india okay. so by the middle of 1975 sikkim becomes a part of india all right now the only questionable thing about this is the amazing alacrity with which all of this happens mm. uh, the speed at which the referendum is organized and everything else and but that's again another story <laughs> another story <laughs> for another day but um This is really interesting when you compare what happens at Bhutan and Sikkim and we spoke about how both the countries are very alike and about mm-hmm. how India also saw them as hyphenated entities um uh, but had very different policy responses towards the both of them so where does where do you think that comes from right i think more than them being alike mm. uh, institutionally the responses to them were very alike for a really long period mm. of time right um one fundamental difference as i said was in the uh, understanding of security mm. right because sikkim was far more uh, closely accessible from tibet in comparison to bhutan right so that's that's one but um I think the major policy difference comes about is when India looked at these two hmm. with its ideas of self-image and saw how they reacted right uh Bhutan talks about a great deal of closeness hmm. with with India throughout right we see uh, Jigme Dorje Wangchuk do that and his the two kings that have come after that continue to do that uh, Sikkim uh, continue to talk about like I told you in the the protesters talked about you know affinity to their northern neighbors mm. right or after the nathula incident happens in 1968 the skirmish between the indian and chinese soldiers happens um you know the chogyal uh, seems to say you know it, it's difficult to say who started it it could be the indians or the chinese right so there is this constant issue of insecurity mm. which i think led to a point where uh in delhi the question that they were trying to answer is if we need the chogyal mm. to stand by us in mm. a moment of crisis tomorrow will he do that mm. and i think their sense was that he won't right which is what so i mean in 1974 the assumption was that the chogyal uh, would uh, get comfortable in his uh, role as a titular head mm. which did not happen which is why in 1975 it's that is that is what the, the available documents and the people have spoken to seem to suggest that maybe it wouldn't have happened had he not gone to Nepal and mm. talked about you know uh, talked to China, the, the Chinese representatives or talked about Indian excesses as he saw them in in Sikkim. Sure, but like that would be a counterfactual no, analysis into absolutely. going to what he could and could not have done. Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly there were differences. If you look at your three criteria, which uh, of self image, which mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you said was civilization, territory, and and development. Development. Um, right. So in development, how did so? Uh, so for change? example, in Bhutan, as I mentioned, all the all the um, various developmental aspects that mm. were there and and Bhutan at all times seemed uh, to appreciate that and and 
In fact, even after 1971, for example, mm. right? So one of the major things that happened after Bhutan became a member of uh, the UN is uh, various countries wanted to open their embassies in Bhutan, mm. right? And they wanted to uh, collaborate with Bhutan, bring in aid and things mm. like that. And Bhutan said two things. One, they said that uh, at this point, they only have resources to have two embassies, one in Delhi and one in New York. Hmm. Okay, and, and that's it. They they won't be able to have more embassies. And two, um, and so which basically means that opening of embassies is reciprocal, right? Hmm. If, if a country comes and opens an embassy, you have to go and open an embassy yeah, there. Yeah. So by not opening embassies elsewhere, you're stopping hmm. people from coming and opening embassies in your country. Uh, so that's, that's one. And the second thing they did was when, you know, various countries came and said, okay, can we have a development relationship and things like that? Uh, Bhutan uh, thanked them. And said that, you know, right now we are at capacity. We, mm. I'm sure we will do it in future. But right now we are not in a position to take aid from you. Right. Mm. So, for example, there is a the British um, High Commissioner in Delhi mm. spoke to the Bhutanese representative in Delhi about this. Mm. This is the response he got. A British uh, overseas development assistance team actually traveled to Bhutan in mm. 1974, I think, uh, or just before that. Uh, okay. And uh, they asked about... Various things about, uh, you know, uh, 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 the, the Putinese uh, representatives that they met talked about uh, the various ways in, in aspects in which they need help in terms of um, uh, agriculture, technology and this and that. OK, but they were not jumping in to say, OK, bring in all mm -hmm. the aid and, and technology that you can. So and at all of these times, they still seemed very careful about how India looked at the issue, right? Mm. By this point, um, Indian representatives in their internal notes to each other about Bhutan are saying that, you know, um, we'll have to let this go, okay? Yeah, but yeah. Now, now Bhutan can reach out to the world, mm. right? So they are accepting it, mm. right? They are aware of this. They're completely cognizant of this. But Bhutan still seems to do this very carefully and in a calibrated mm. way, right? Yeah, yeah. When it comes to Sikkim, for example, in 1968, um, Indira Gandhi travels to Sikkim, mm. right? And so the Chogyal and Indira Gandhi, they have this, um, meeting in a, in a stadium, which has been built with Indian money. Okay. And, you know, that is possibly the high point of, uh, Sikkim's relationship with India or India's right. relationship with Sikkim, right? Where they talk about how, you know, th with this, so the Chogyal thanks India for the aid and, and for everything that, um, uh, India has done and, in India is happy to know that. But from there, it's it's downhill. Okay. Mm. Um, the Chogyal refuses to acknowledge uh, Indian aid. Mm. India is not happy with the Chogyal and things just don't go well from there. So, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, okay. This is something that I've been wondering through our conversation over mm -hmm. the last one and a half hours. But uh, how did you go about researching all of this? Um, when it, uh, because y you have stories that I, I don't think I've heard ever before. Mm -hmm. So how do you get access to all of this? So, okay. So one part is I spoke with people who were who were there at various points in time. In BS Das is someone I told you about. Yeah. Uh, there are also various other uh, bureaucrats who have been, uh, you know, who, who have worked in Sikkim and Bhutan or even in Delhi dealing with uh, the, the, the Emirs Northern Division which deals with these uh, parts. So I've spoken with a lot of these people. Uh, but most interestingly, what has been happening in the last few years is the opening up of a lot of basically the declassification and becoming available of a lot of uh, documents. So mm. in Delhi, there are two places that one can go to, right? One is the National Archives of India and mm. the other is the Teen Murti Bhavan, the Nehru Memorial uh, Library, mm. right? Uh, Museum and Library. Now, 
the what nehru memorial has essentially are private papers mm. right so people who were imported in these phases how were they thinking okay right? and their connections with various people mm. right now and in nai when you look at the emir documents what you find is uh, how policy was being applied on ground mm. so it's it's the the view is from two different levels mm. right there are teen murti bhavan it's basically the elites who are talking to each other is this how we should go about it is this right is mm. this wrong is this feasible is this viable right and the applications of those thoughts mm. are in the documents that you find at nai now it takes a lot of patience it's not a perfect system but um i mean i think there are more archival documents and not just about second bhutan mm. about about um, indian foreign policy as a whole okay i think there are more archival documents more archival material that is available now mm. than has been ever before so if anyone any of the listeners want to get into archival research now is the time to do it also it's a great uh, uh, great lesson in patience which i think all of us <laughs> could do more with <laughs> all right I, i think that's also telling about what we should look forward to in archival research yeah yeah a little bit <laughs> okay so this is my last question for you deep since you've spent hours and hours <laughs> at uh, the archives in india mm-hmm. and you spent a lot of time reading what mm-hmm. would be books or resources that you recommend for someone who wants to know more about uh, the history of bhutan about the history of sikkim about india's relationships right. with these countries right so i would have ideally wanted to uh, suggest my book but since i haven't written that yet <laughs> uh, in the meantime so on sikkim there are a couple of books i mentioned smash and grab yes sunanda ke datara sunanda ke datara smash and grab annexation of sikkim mm-hmm. right it's it's uh, it's basically written from just from the ground so mm-hmm. there is that uh there's also a more recent book which also takes a view of the palace um which is called requiem for a himalayan kingdom which okay. is by this uh, journalist called andrew duff okay right so these are two books that uh, look at the developments from the perspective of the palace hmm. now the involvement of the raw is something that was always hinted about but hmm. no one really talked about it there is a very recent book that's come out which is very candid about it it's by this gentleman called gbs sidhu okay who was uh, a raw officer on ground All right. and it's called sikkim dawn of democracy okay. so if one wants to get a better idea of sikkim hmm. uh, reading these two sides hmm. should help now unfortunately about bhutan there are a lot of books hmm. by many of the indian officers who were stationed there but almost all of them are out of print okay unfortunately that's right so that's something that as a as a state as a nation as a society we should possibly think about more you know making mm-hmm. history more easily accessible but um, more recently there is this book uh, by rajesh kharath mm-hmm. uh, foreign policy of bhutan okay right and uh, another one by omar ahmed mm-hmm. which is called the kingdom at the center of the world okay right so these these are these should be good starting points uh on on these two uh, places all right okay thank you so much deep hopefully at some point we will add your book to the list of resources that people can read i certainly hope so thank you so much hanjini it's been great being here <laughs> thank you that's it for this episode of states of anarchy thanks for staying with us if you want to read more about bhutan and sikkim i've attached a bunch of recommended readings for you in the episode description so you can scroll down and check them out You can also follow States of Anarchy on Twitter at the rate Hamsini H and on Instagram at the rate States of Anarchy. If you want to delve deeper into some of the topics that we discussed on the podcast, whether it's public policy or foreign policy, I suggest you check out some of the courses at the Takshashila Institution. They are of varying lengths, so you can choose depending on your interest. So check those out as well. 
If you like what you listen to, then do subscribe to States of Anarchy. We're not only on the IVM podcast app and website, but also on iTunes, Spotify, Savan, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday. This is the amazing story of something awesome. Once Chuck decided to start a podcast, and so he did. The end. Okay, that was a crappy story. But I've got some really cool stories over at my new show, The Origin of Things. On this podcast, I look at the stories of how brands came into being and sometimes evolved out of quite unexpected circumstances. And to make it really fun, I reveal the name of the brand and sometimes a category only at the very end. The show is 5 to 7 minutes per episode and perfect for trivia junkies and brand nerds, especially those with short attention spans. New episodes out every Wednesday on IVM Podcast app or website or any podcast app or site that you happen to prefer. End of story, they lived happily ever after. Hi guys, this is Ayushi and I am Ritasha. And welcome to Agla Station Adulthood. It's a fun podcast we've got going on and we'd love for you to tune in and enjoy with us. Join us as we stop at various stations and discuss different topics that seem to be bothering us and hopefully Dating, you as well. Relationships, beauty, just being an adult, lots of different things. We don't have a great grip on it, but we've done okay so far. Catch Agla Station Adulthood every Thursday on the IVM app, the IVM website or wherever else you get your podcasts.